All right, if you would open your Bibles to Luke chapter 12. What we are learning this morning is uh, directly connected to what we learned last week. And so there really isn't a need for a lengthy introduction or any kind of uh, setting up the text. Uh, we did learn last week from uh, the previous verses, chapter 12, verses 13 through 21, uh, we learned about the danger of covetousness. And uh, as we looked at these verses, we saw that Jesus warned people. He warned his disciples. He warned those who were there about the danger of coveting the things of the world, of desiring in an unhealthy and an unbiblical way, an ungodly way, the possessions of the world. If you recall, there was a, a, a young man who came to Christ, and uh, he saw Jesus as a rabbi, a teacher, and wanted him to settle a dispute uh, he wanted his portion of the inheritance, and it was most likely that he wanted a larger share of the inheritance, uh, and he wanted Jesus to uh, see in his favor uh, and to uh, take that back to his family so he can say, I need my portion now. And even if it wasn't uh, the larger portion, perhaps it wasn't the right timing. Either way, this young man, Jesus said, was greedy. And he said that through the rich man, uh, the parable of the uh, rich man who was called the fool. If you recall this rich man, he thought he could secure uh, not only his present, but his future. That he had grown many crops, he had amassed many goods, and he had so much wealth uh, that he realized that he needed to build more storehouses. There was just too much to keep, and his plans were to have more, and so he needed more to provide for the provisions that he had. And, and his mistake, his foolishness was that he thought that he controlled his future, uh, that he had the wealth, the knowledge, the wisdom, the power, the ability to determine that his entire future was secure. And of course, as we continued in that parable, we saw here that this man was greatly mistaken, that Jesus said, your soul, this very night, your soul is required of you. And we ended in that section looking at verse 21. We saw here, it says that, so is the man who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so anyone who had the mentality, the mindset of this young man who wanted Christ to uh, settle the inheritance dispute, or this man in the parable uh, who, who was mistaken about the control he had over his possessions, uh, Jesus says, if you have that mentality, if you are storing up your treasures here on earth and not rich toward God, you will suffer the same consequence. And we understand from that parable, the consequence was, is this man left this earth, left this life with nothing, none of his possessions, and we would assume he also left without being reconciled to God, because God was not important to him. Well, as we continue this morning, we're going to see here that the, the focus shifts a little bit. Uh, Jesus then turns to his disciples, and he's going to give them some very important instruction on how they can avoid becoming like the rich fool. And so that's what we will see this morning as we look here. We're going to see uh, this message from Luke chapter 12, verses 22 through 34. As we look at some principles about living a life of trust and dependence upon God. Now here we're going to break this down into five different uh, sections, five principles here. And uh, this is the way that I was uh, breaking it down and saw it this week as I was preparing uh, as I was reading this text, I kept coming back to, to kind of these truths. 
uh, that my life, your life, our lives consist of more than physical needs. We'll see that in verses 22 and 23. Also, that our lives are more valuable to God than the rest of creation. We'll see that truth in verses 24, 27, and 28. Uh, Also, our lives cannot be extended by worrying. And we will see that truth in verse 25 and 26. The fourth is that we should be focused on seeking the kingdom of God, verses 29 through 32. And then we'll close out this morning uh, looking at this principle that our lives, your life, should be lived as a generous steward. That will be verses 33 and 34. Let me read through this text, and then we will begin with our first principle of the fact that our lives consist of more than physical needs. Uh, Beginning in verse 22, it says, And he said to his disciples, For this reason I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life span? If then you cannot do even a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek, but your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. For your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, as we come to this first point, and that is that your life consists of more than physical needs, Jesus reminds his disciples that they should not be overly anxious about the daily provisions. Uh, and, and when we go back to verse 21, we see here that the, the idea of, of focusing on what you can amass, on, on the temporal wealth, and not focusing on the wealth that God gives and being rich toward God Uh, that is going to result in an act of futility. That's going to result ultimately in loss. If you find your riches in the things of the world and not like God or in God, you will end up just like this rich fool. And it is a universal truth. This applies to everyone who is alive on the face of the earth, past, present, and future. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what age you are, your gender, your, your education, or your, sh- your social status, your political affiliation. It makes no difference. We all come into the world the same way. We all leave the world the same way. When we come in, we come in as these helpless children. Uh, we, we enter into this world naked and penniless. We have nothing. Praise God that he gives us families and provides for us. And when we leave, the reality is 
is that we end up leaving, and many would say naked and penniless. Uh, of course, there's not a, a body that's unclothed there on display, and praise God that that's not. But the idea is, is you're just not taking anything with you. It's interesting, on uh, Netflix, there are some shows uh, that, that follow families that own uh, funeral homes. And it shows how they are preparing the bodies and helping the families and preparing, planning the services and what they go through. It's very interesting to see uh, all that they do. And some of these caskets are very, very expensive, beautiful. And you're looking at all of the ceremonies they go through, and they're, they're putting things in the casket so they can take these things with them into the next life, and they're being buried in these suits you know, that are worth thousands of dollars, and yet the person's already gone. They take none of that with them. That's more for the family who is left behind, not the person who is already gone. Because like the rich fool, all his possessions were given to someone else and were divided up. He took nothing with him. But Jesus tells his disciples, I say to you, do not worry about your life as to what you will eat, nor your body as to what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. And this directly connects to verses 19 and 20, where this rich fool is comforting his soul, comforting himself, saying, we have everything we need now. We'll have everything we need for the future. Don't worry. I've taken care of everything. And yet he tells his disciples, you don't need to worry like this man. In fact, as he is saying, don't worry, it's, it, many see it as a, as a command. Stop worrying. Maybe you are in that situation right now where you're looking at everything that is happening in your life. You're looking at, at financial needs and you're looking at finishing off this year and Christmas and maybe you have some car repairs or medical bills or whatever it might be and you are worrying about what is going on. Now, there is no reason that we shouldn't provide for ourselves and we'll see that as we continue the text. But to, to worry in an unhealthy, unbiblical manner is not something that is wise. It is foolish. And Jesus says, don't worry about these provisions. Don't be troubled with cares. You need to not focus on them in such an unhealthy manner. You know, as this rich fool was, was speaking to his soul, it's interesting, we see here in, in New American Standard, Jesus says, I say to you, do not worry about your life, but literally, he's speaking about their souls. The word there that is translated life is suke. It's the soul. He says, don't worry about your souls. And what is interesting is that the rich fool gave assurance to his soul that everything was taken care of. And yet his soul was required that very night. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't be like this man. Don't be overly anxious. Don't worry about your souls, your life. Because as he's going to demonstrate in these next verses, your father knows what you need. Your father loves you. Your father will provide for you. Therefore, you do not need to live with worry and anxiety. As we look at these needs about, about what you put into your body and what you put onto your, or onto your body and into your body, this really is the daily bread. These are the daily provisions that we need. We need clothing. We need food. We need shelter. And in Matthew 6 and Luke 11, 3, we've read about these. We've studied these already. Give us this day our daily bread, the provisions that we need. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. 
I say to you, do not worry about your life. Do not worry about the daily bread, what you will eat or what you will put on your body. Because God will provide for you. He will take care of you. The food, the clothing, the daily provisions. Yes, we work to provide. Yes, we need to make sure we have them for our families. But to get to the point of an unhealthy anxiety is ungodly. And it's the wrong focus. And that's Christ's point to his disciples. And so he says, you don't need to worry in that manner. You know, when we think about uh, having faith in God, some will take this to an extreme and say, well, I have faith and I don't have to necessarily go out and look for a job or worry about where money's coming in. Well, that's foolish. That's not what Jesus is teaching at all. Here is one passage, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10. And Paul here is speaking to his brethren in Thessalonica. And uh, Paul would set the example that he was a hard worker. He was a tent maker. We would say that he was a pastor who had a, a secular job, another job. And, and he would take care of himself so he wouldn't be an unnecessary burden to the congregation. There were those congregations who provided for him. And there were times when he needed it. But he also made sure that he took care of himself and he didn't burden himself. And as he is uh, writing to his brethren in Thessalonica, he says this. For even when we were with you, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. You know, there are some who are living life as freeloaders. They just want to, to live off of someone else. You know, there's different names for them, whether you call them a freeloader or an urchin or a leech or a parasite, whatever it might be, that's what they do. They are like these parasitic bloodsuckers that, that, that take all of their nourishment, their sustenance from others. And Paul says, that's, that's not the kind of life you are to lead. You don't lead this careless, irresponsible life where you're just looking to everyone else to provide for you. You work for what you need. You work and you provide for yourself. And as we'll see here as we get to the end of this text, when you are providing for yourself and you have the right perspective, then you can take what God has given you and you can share that with others. And so Jesus says here, don't worry. I say to you, stop worrying about these daily provisions. God will give to you. And, and sometimes, as we look here, I think most of the time, this this principle in 2 Thessalonians applies, that we need to work so that we can eat. And that's the way most of our lives are lived, that we work for the things that we need to provide for ourselves, to provide for our families. But there are times when God provides for us, and there's absolutely nothing that we can do to provide for ourselves, and he does it through his, his power and his wisdom and his provision, as he did with the Jewish people when they were going through the wilderness when they came out of Egypt and they were heading to the promised land. Forty years of God's provision of daily bread, manna and quail every day for them. It did not wear out. In fact, not even the soles of their sandals wore out and their feet did not swell. Nehemiah chapter 9, verses 15 and 21. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them in their thirst. And you told them to enter in uh, in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. Indeed, 40 years you provided for them in the wilderness, and they were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. And when you look at this, the reminder here in Nehemiah is God took care of us. 40 years he didn't let us go without daily bread. 
Now, of course, there were times when the Jews were complaining about manna and quail. There's so much of this. What about the cucumbers and the leeks and all the things that we had back in Egypt? Can't we get something a little different on the menu? Well, look, it's daily bread. It's the daily provision. It really comes down to the needs and the wants. They needed food. God provided it. They needed drink. God gave them water. But sometimes we're not happy with the needs we desire, we crave, we long for the wants. And that's where the rich young fool failed. So Jesus tells his disciples, it will be provided for you. Don't worry. Your life consists of more than physical needs. Let's look at the second principle. Your life is more valuable to God than the rest of creation. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap. They have no storeroom nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Now, this is not the the first time that we see God comparing uh, nature to the care that God gives for his people. If you recall, back in uh, chapter 12, verse 6, we learn that there were five sparrows sold for two cents. And this was the insignificant value of the sparrow. If God is concerned for five sparrows that you can buy for two cents, then don't you think he cares about you more if he's so concerned with these insignificant little birds? In fact, we see here that he's not just concerned, but we also see that not one of them is forgotten before God. And the idea there is not one is neglected or given over to oblivion. Not one of these little birds perishes without God knowing about that, not caring for them during their lives. He doesn't forget even one of these small birds. Therefore, God cares for you much more and will provide for you. Well, here, Jesus is not speaking of the sparrow, but he speaks about the raven. And this is interesting because the raven was a bird that was considered detestable and unclean to the Jewish people. Now, I think they're pretty cool. If you've noticed my attire, my preferences, I like darker colors. I like dark clothes. Black is my color. Black, black, black Bible, black notebook. So I kind of like the black bird. Okay? But the Jewish people did not. Okay? They looked at the raven, and, and they were taught from Scripture that the raven was unclean. You, you, this, this bird, it, it, you're not to deal with this bird. You don't consume this bird. This bird is an unclean bird. Leviticus 11, verses 13 through 15. These, moreover, you shall detest among the birds. They are abhorrent, not to be eaten. The eagle and the vulture and the buzzard and the kite and the falcon and its kind. Every raven in its kind. Don't touch the ravens. The ravens are unclean to you. They're detestable to you. And it's interesting that Jesus chooses this bird, not not a prettier bird, not a bird that's clean. And why does he do that? He's making a point. If God provides for this detestable raven, don't you think he'll provide for you? Consider what it says in Psalm 147, verses 7 through 9. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Sing praises to our God on the lyre who covers the heavens with clouds, who provides rain for the earth, who makes grass to grow on the mountains. He gives to the beast its food and to the young ravens which cry. 
the raven was detestable, the raven was unclean, and yet we see the psalmist saying, praise the Lord with thanksgiving, sing to him. Why? Because he provides even for the raven. And so Jesus says, if he provides for this raven, how much more valuable are you than this detestable bird? The raven doesn't sow, the raven doesn't reap, the rich man sowed, the rich man would go and reap the harvest. He planted his crops and, and benefited from that. The ravens don't, yet they eat daily. The ravens don't build storerooms or barns, but the rich fool did. He had barns, and he was going to tear down his barns and, and, and build larger barns. And yet he couldn't even keep what he had. It was taken from him that very night. And yet we see here the raven, who does nothing to provide for itself, is provided for by God. And Jesus says, consider the raven. How much more valuable are you than this raven? He also goes to the example of plant life. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, O men of little faith? You know, when you think of the lilies of the field here, he says you consider all these flowers. They're beautiful. They're glorious. Look at the splendor of these lilies. God provides for them. You know, this made me think of the flowers that we have out here in our yard. Right now, if you go outside the, the glass doors here and you kind of make a quick left across from the water fountain, you're going to see a tree, and underneath it's just a bunch of green leaves, long, thin leaves. Every year, like clockwork, for as long as we've been here, and we've been here going on 16 years, every spring, what do we see? This, the amaryllis. They are everywhere. It's a sea of red and white. And I guarantee you, we don't do anything to keep them. We have sprinklers on timers, and that's about it. We don't fertilize it. We rarely go in to weed it. You've noticed that. Maybe you can help us with that. But they come back every year like clockwork. So right around Easter time, we go out there, and we see the amaryllis in full bloom. Who takes care of that? Who designed that? Who sustains that? It is God. And God is telling his disciples, consider the lilies for us. Consider maybe the amaryllis. And understand that God provides for them. He, he's designed them in such a way that they continue to grow year after year. And yet when we look at them, they don't really do much for themselves. They just grow. Because that's the way the Lord has cared for them. And it says here that you, you consider these lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. Uh, there are some who, who believe that the lily is actually what is known as a purple anemone. And they say it, it is in contrast to the purple garments, the royal garments of Solomon. Whether it's a lily or an amaryllis or the anemone, the point is, is these flowers are beautiful. These flowers have a natural glory to them. And when we say natural, it's a God-given glory. 
And, and, and Jesus says, these are more glorious than Solomon himself. Interesting that he chose Solomon, who was considered the wisest man who ever lived. Solomon. To the Jewish people, who was the richest man, the wealthiest man who ever lived? Probably Solomon. We learned last week that and when you look at history, uh, at least from the, the understanding of this financial website, Solomon was right about number five of the richest who have ever lived, the wealthiest people. Remember the, the estimated adjusted net worth of $2 trillion? If you want to read about his vast kingdom and, and, and the, 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 uh, the name that he made for himself, really that God made for him, but that spread throughout the nations, you could read 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 4 through 23. And you can and get a little glimpse, a window into the vast wealth of Solomon's kingdom. In fact, it says the queen of the south came and, and she heard about Solomon. She wanted to know whether or not it was true about his wisdom and his wealth. And when she came, she said, what I have seen is beyond what I heard. What I heard is not even half of what you have and who you are. She was so impressed, so amazed by Solomon. And there were certainly other leaders throughout the world who saw Solomon and said, he is, of course, he is a, a king who reigns in splendor and glory, majesty, riches, sovereignty. And yet Jesus says, consider the lilies. Not even Solomon clothed himself like, in glory like the lilies. Now, it's interesting with the lilies. They don't have a very long lifespan. Jesus says, but if God so clothes the grass in the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, how much more will he clothe you, you men of little faith? These flowers, whether Jesus is talking about the lily or kind of the wildflowers and the grasses in general, the idea is as these plants grow, they're alive for a few days, they die, and then they become kindling for fires. They're not here very long, but when they are here, they're provided for, and they're glorious, and they come back year after year after year. And Jesus says, if their lifespan is so short, and yet God clothes them with glory and splendor and provides for them, don't you think that he would do more for you? As I've mentioned before, I truly believe that human beings are the pinnacle of God's creation. If, if you study just the things of this planet, not even going outside of our planet, just looking at what we have here, you can spend your entire life studying the animal kingdom and the plants and, and geology and everything that, is, that we have here just on planet Earth, and, and you could be overwhelmed and amazed your entire life. And that's not even beyond our planet. You think of the sun, the moon, the stars, the galaxy, the universe. And yet we are the greatest creation that God has made. This universe exists to sustain human life. God designed it that way. And God says, if God, or Jesus says, if God is concerned with these things that are here today and gone tomorrow, don't you think he's concerned for you? Don't you think he'll provide for you? And when he, he says that, look at what he says after the, the question of, of how much more will he clothe you? You men of little faith. It, it comes down to faith in God. 
do I believe that God's going to provide for my needs? Or I do, do, do I have faith in God only to the point where I see something that seems too big for God to handle? Now I have to step in and give God a hand. I mean, that sounds foolish, but many people think that way. Many people live that way. I'll trust God in the big things like salvation, but when it's, you're talking about the daily bread and these other things, well, you know, I've got to do it all myself. God can handle the glorious things, the, the, the big things, but everything else, that's, that's me. And that's foolish. To think that God is not in control of everything is to live foolishly as if he didn't exist. Understand, your, your life is more valuable to God than the rest of creation, and he will provide for you. Well, let's look at our next principle here. Your life cannot be extended by worrying or being anxious. Right? And which of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you cannot even do a very little thing, why do you worry about other matters? You know, prolonging life is an obsession for many people. Most people pursue it through exercise or medications, vitamins, their diet. Uh, some even look into, you know, some kind of cryogenic sleep and they want to wake up years later and continue on. Uh, I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with wanting to live. I mean, I, I would love to live to be a great-grandfather. I love being a grandfather, but I want to be a great-grandfather. And Lord willing, maybe one day, like my grandmother, I can be a great-great. That would be amazing. I'd love it. But I don't control the length of my life. There's nothing wrong with desiring to live a long life here on earth and to have your family and friends and enjoy God's creation. But the reality is, is we can't even add one cubit. We can't even add one hour to our lives. And, and that's Jesus' point. It's interesting, I was reading an article earlier this week, and it was on how foods can change your, your lifespan. And it said here that if you were to eat salted peanuts, a, a, a moderate amount, you can add 26 minutes to your life. Uh, if you ate baked salmon, you can add 16 minutes. If you had rice with beans, you can add 13 minutes. If that's true, then we Mexicans are going to live a long, long time. <laughs> long time. Okay? I can say that. That's all right. <laughs> you can say it too. I won't be offended. Apple pie. Apple pie. 1.3 minutes. Okay. But how about hot wings? You eat some hot wings and you've now taken off 3.3 minutes of your life. How about a hot dog? 36 minutes if you consume one hot dog. Yeah. How about a cheeseburger? Yeah. I didn't look that up. I don't want to look that up because I'm planning on having a cheeseburger for dinner. <laughs> you know, there is a competitive hot dog eating champion. His name is Joey Chestnut. And they say that he's eaten 19,200 hot dogs in his career. And according to this study, he's lost 1.3 years of his life. I don't think that's ultimately what's going to take him or shorten his years. I do believe that, of course, the way we eat can impact the, the, the quality of life, the quality of years that we have. 
But listen, God doesn't look at someone who, who dies. He's not going to look at Joey Chestnut and say, wow, I really had hoped you lived longer, Joey, but you ate just too many hot dogs. Right? I wanted to give you more days, but you didn't stop. You kept on going, and you, you went past 20,000, man. Come on. No, I mean, God knows when we're going to be called home. He knows when our souls are required. It doesn't mean, you know, just ruin your health by eating, you know, these, these foods that are not good for you. And, of course, everything's in moderation. But the point that Jesus was making is, is you, you can't even add a single hour. I mean, Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy 4.8. Bodily discipline is only little profit. He didn't say no profit, but of little profit. There is profit to bodily discipline. There's profit and there's benefit in eating healthy, in working out, in taking care of your body by resting and, and drinking water and, and, and not eating so many uh, you know, uh, uh, junk food meals or whatever. There's, there's benefit in that. But it's little benefit when you talk about the soul. He says, bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And that's the point. If we are always focusing and only focusing on the temporal and not the eternal, the physical and not the spiritual, we're going to find ourselves in the same situation as the rich fool. The souls will be required and we will take nothing with us. And so we need to understand that our lives are, are, are not able to be extended by worry. Jesus says you can't add a single hour to your life. Literally, you can't add a cubit. You can't add 18 inches to your life. Now, of course, we don't measure our lives in inches. We measure them in hours and days and months and, and weeks and years. But the point here is, is that when you take a cubit, you take that short span, 18 inches, and you compare that to your life, what is 18 inches? What is 18 inches to a day? Let's, let's say one hour. What is one hour to a day? Okay, 1 24th of the day. What is one hour to a week? What is one hour to a month? What is one hour to a year? What is one hour to a decade? What is one hour to a lifetime? It's nothing. And Jesus, if you can't even add this small percentage to your life, why do you worry about it? Why are you so anxious about the things you cannot control? Your life cannot be extended by worrying or being anxious. Look as we continue here in verses 29 through 32. Your life should be focused on seeking the kingdom of God. And do not seek what you will eat and what you will drink, and do not keep worrying. For all these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. But your Father knows that you need these things. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Do not be afraid, little flock. Your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. Listen, Jesus here is giving us this contrast. First, he says, don't seek what the unbelieving world seeks. You know, as we've seen, to, to eat and drink, these are daily bread items. But to worry about them in an ungodly and unbiblical way, it demonstrates that you think like the unbelieving nations. And, and that word there for nations is ethnos. Okay? And it's often translated Gentiles. 
to the Jewish people, the nations, the ethnos, it was a reference to all those who live outside of the people of God. The Gentiles were considered the pagans. They were the unbelievers. They were those who did not know God. The, the nations, the Gentiles, were the ones who served false gods and, and practiced their pagan religion. And Jesus says, when you're worrying about these daily provisions, you're just like the nations. The nations seek all these things. The nations worry about daily provisions. Why? They don't know God. They don't know who God is. They don't understand that he provides for them. And, and so they are constantly living in a state of anxiety and fear. They're either relying on their own abilities to provide for themselves, or perhaps they're calling upon false gods who cannot hear them and cannot provide for them. So that too is an act of futility. And Jesus says, don't worry about these things. The nations do this. The nations think that way. All these things the nations of the world eagerly seek. That kind of life would be so frustrating, so tiring to live. Where if every single day of your life you were living with worry and anxiety, thinking, how am I going to do this? How am I going to provide for myself or for my wife or my children? Or, or what, what happens if the business closes down? What happens if I lose my job? What happens if, you know, this? You can go on and on and on. And it can drive you mad if you think that you have to provide all those things and there's no help from God. But Jesus talks to his disciples and he says that the nations seek all these things. But look at what he says. But your father knows that you need these things. God is the father of those who come to him through Christ. His disciples were children of God. The disciples were the brothers of Christ, joint heirs to the kingdom. The Gentile nations are not. That doesn't mean that Gentiles can't be saved. I think the vast majority of us in here this morning represent Gentile nations. And yet we have found, thank the Lord, salvation in Christ. But the comparison here is that these unbelieving people from pagan nations, God is not their father. He's their creator, but he's not their spiritual father in that they have life through Christ. That they have that assurance of being loved by God and provided by God here on earth and in the life to come. But he tells his disciples, your father... He knows what you need. You know, we as human fathers, we know how to provide for our families. And, and I think I would be lying if I didn't say that every one of us hasn't felt a little anxious or worried about providing for our families. We do. We want to make sure that we take care of them. And so, so you have any, any husband or father who is, you know, trying to, to, to fulfill his responsibility as best as he can, of course he's going to provide for his family. Whatever he can give them, he will give them. If he has to work hard, he will work hard. And, and when you look at, at a parallel passage here, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, we see here again the lesser to the greater example. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? 
Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? Of course not. You're not going to give your son something that is, is not what he needs or is dangerous to him. If then being evil, right, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, that means that we are, are not holy like God. We are not perfect like God. We are sinful people. If you as sinful people know how to provide for your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Okay. The lesser human fathers, we provide for our families, and we are sinful people. How about a God who is without sin? A God who is perfectly holy and perfectly just and good and loving and compassionate and kind. Won't he provide in a better way than a human father can? Absolutely. And so Jesus tells his brethren. In fact, here he uses this, this um wonderful term of endearment that you are to trust your father you're a little flock is what he says you should to seek the kingdom your father knows what you need seek his kingdom and little flock he's going to give it to you we see that here in verse um, 32 let me just address this quickly before we move on what does it mean to seek the kingdom yeah, I don't have time to go into an extensive study about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, but I think these are all ways that demonstrate we seek the kingdom of God. Okay? It is living to glorify God and to worship God. Okay? We understand that our lives are here for the purpose of glorifying God, so we live to glorify God. It's trusting God for his provision for you and not trusting solely in yourself. It's desiring the will of God to be accomplished that you want his will to be done, his plan to be established. It's loving God and living for God by obeying his word. It's not just lip service, but it is being a hearer and a doer of the word. That demonstrates that you're seeking the kingdom of God. It's sharing the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. It's understanding that the kingdom is going to be populated by people who are redeemed, who are saved from their sins. So how do we show that we're seeking the kingdom of God? We're proclaiming the gospel so God will save more people through the proclamation of that gospel. And that adds to the kingdom. It's to have a desire to see God exalted and glorified among the nations. We want every tribe and tongue and nation to know who God is and to know that salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. It's having a desire to see every knee bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. All these things demonstrate a person whose mind is set on seeking the kingdom of God. And if we take all of this and we just narrow it down, we say this, that, that what we want is God to be exalted, God to be made great, God to be recognized. We want to see him lifted up, his name proclaimed, all eyes on him, all glory given to him. That's part of seeking the kingdom of God. And now this this, this young man who came to Christ with this dispute over inheritance and the rich fool in the parable, they were not seeking the kingdom of God. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes were not seeking the kingdom of God. Saul, before he became Paul, was not seeking the kingdom of God. It wasn't until he met Christ that he had the right perspective. And then he said to live is Christ and to die is gain. He had the mentality of seeking the kingdom. That's the way we should live. And Jesus tells his brethren, do not be afraid, little flock. 
for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. What a wonderful term of endearment here. I don't know what names you have for your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren, but I'm sure we all have nicknames. And those nicknames are special. They mean something. I'm not going to tell you all of the names we have, but I have names for Robert, I have names for Tim, I have names for Tabitha, I have names for Josh, and if I say it to them, they know who I'm talking about, and they know why I'm using that name. That's the name that their daddy gave them. Well, when you look here, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, you don't need to be afraid, little flock, my little lambs. On Wednesday evenings, we were studying the I am phrases, the I am statements, and one of them is, I am the good shepherd. And we learn that the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus died for his flock. He loved his flock to the point of going to the cross and bearing our sins and, and experiencing the full wrath of God upon him in order to save our souls. And he tells his disciples, don't be afraid, little flock. Why? Your father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom. I tell you, seek the kingdom, and guess what? The father is glad. You don't care. Oh, he's, he's delighted in giving you the kingdom. He takes pleasure in giving you the kingdom. He wants to bless you with riches that you can't even imagine, with glory. Don't be worried, little flock. God will provide for you now, and he will provide for you when you leave this planet. So don't think like the Gentile nations. Live as you seek the kingdom of God. That should be your focus. Don't be focused on the things of the world. Be focused on the kingdom of God. And finally, our fifth principle this morning, your life should be lived as a generous steward. Look at verses 33 and 34. Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourselves money belts which do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, there are those who mistakenly think that this, life, this passage is teaching that we have to live lives of poverty. That we can't, you know, own buildings. I, I have had conversations with Christians who were a little upset that we own this property. Well, you, you shouldn't own property. That, that's that's um, investing in, in earthly temporal wealth. You, you could just sell the property and be a renter and use the money for something else. In some situations, that works. But not every congregation is sinful if they're owning property. You know, if you own a house or if you have a nice car and you should never buy a new car, you should buy your clothes at uh, you know, Salvation Army or Goodwill or Savers or whatever it is, Hey, you can find some good deals there, but there's nothing wrong with buying something new or having something nice. Jesus is not saying you have to live in poverty. The key here is, is the very last sentence. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your heart is, is focused on having all the luxuries of this world, if you crave that, you desire that, you long for that, you're obsessed with that, that's your treasure. That demonstrates where your heart is. But you see, when you are living as a generous steward, and when we see her selling possessions and giving to charity, and this is something that the early church actually did. If you look at the book of Acts, in, in Acts chapter 5, believers were selling what they had and giving it. They were bringing it to the apostles, and they were using it within the congregation as they needed. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira had a piece of land, and they sold it, and they lied about how much they gave. 
they could have given less than the full sale price. Peter explained that. But they were trying to deceive Peter and deceive God into thinking they gave 100% so they'd get more human praise. They didn't have to give 100%. They could have given less, but they wanted the praise of men. There's nothing wrong with owning possessions. This is not teaching poverty. It's teaching that, that you are to live as a generous steward, that, that you are to, to, to live your life with an open hand as God gives to you. It's open so you can share it with others as you have need, as there's opportunity, because you understand that you're to be a steward of everything God gives. Look at this one last text before we close. Matthew 19, verses 21 through 26. This was this rich young man who came to Christ asking about salvation. Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Listen, this rich young ruler, like the wealthy landowner, like the rich fool in the parable, loved their possessions so much that they had no room in their hearts for God. To give up earthly possessions to follow God was too much for them to comprehend, too much for them to accept. They would rather cling to their earthly possessions and die without Christ than to live trusting in Him. You see, your life should be lived as a, a generous steward. Thank the Lord for what He's given you, your job, your money, your home, everything you have, and, and understand it's a gift from God, and what He's given to me I would be happy to bless others with it as well. When that's your mentality, you are glorifying God and demonstrating that you do not love the things of this world. So how do we avoid ending up like the rich fool? Understand that you, your life consists of more than or, uh, physical needs. Understand that your life is more valuable to God than the rest of creation. Understand that your life cannot be extended by worrying. Understand that you should be focused on seeking the kingdom of God and understand that you should live your life as a generous steward. When we follow these principles, then we will see that we are truly glorifying God and that our hearts have the right perspective, that our treasure is in heaven. Our greatest treasure is God himself. Father, we come before you. We thank you so much for this morning and for this opportunity to spend time in your word I pray, Lord, that what we've learned this morning, we can take these truths and that we will live by them, Lord, that uh, others will see uh, the mentality that we have and that we will be generous givers and, and just uh, demonstrate that you are our greatest treasure and that when we do this, we know it will bring glory to your name. It will be a good testimony to those around us. And, Lord, we pray that that would give us opportunities to share the gospel so that we can tell others about the wonderful eternal life gift that you have given to us through Christ and that they can have if they call upon him in faith. We thank and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.